0: Kenny Chester podcast. Welcome back to the Kenny Chesser podcast. I am your host Kenny Chesser and today we're doing part two of live not by lies. Specifically we're going to be doing a little exposition on Ephesians chapter four and we're going to be talking about the tower of Babel and how that story in the passage from Ephesians that Paul wrote applies to us today. I think you're going to enjoy it. Buckle up. Let's get to work. I don't know. It seems to me that he shouldn't be saying that. Well, what is it that you want him to say? Shut him down. Let's get right into it today. Let's start with Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to read a very familiar for my listeners out there that go to church. A passage of Scripture. Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus, and he says something about the ministry, and he says it this way So Christ Himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip His people for the works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up upon until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, many people classify and categorize this as the fivefold ministry. Now, there are some theological points to be made concerning this that we're not going to make today. Some people believe that it's a fourfold ministry, and the uh, the teaching pastor is one role. Um, I'm not going to weigh in on that on this episode, but I would just like to say that the obvious thing to take away initially from this passage is that Christ Himself is responsible for the gift of ministry that he gave the church this wonderful gift now you may have had bad experience with ministry and i understand that that is that is something that that has happened and we aren't putting our head in the sand that in saying there's never been any abuses from spiritual authority in the church and so if you've been a victim of that i sincerely hurt for you and pray for whatever it is that it will take to have you reconciled and repaired and restored. That being said, because a gift is abused, does not mean the gift is not as precious, valuable, or necessary as it pertains to the receive or the recipient and the giver. Christ himself gave ministry to the church for the equipping of his people so that people could be grown up, so they could become unified, so that they could know the, have the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, and you could obtain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is what Paul is writing about the church. So yes, there have been abuses, but there have been a lot of good gifts that people have abused over the years. You think of something like the gift of sexual relationships. It's, it's, I think that's a gift to mankind. Are there abuses of it? Absolutely. Are there people that force themselves on others or sexually abuse children? Yes, there are. But that gift as it exists in the areas that God has intended it for, in the the bounds of marriage, it is a wonderful gift to humanity. That's just one example of a gift from God that has been abused. And so just because something can be abused doesn't mean that it's not a a wonderful gift to be taken advantage of. And so here Paul is writing to of the gift that ministry is to the church. So ministry is meant to build up the body. Ministry is also meant to mature the saints. Continue reading, let's read on. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Now, this is one of the reasons that I touched on this in our last lesson of Culture and Crisis is that we had a wonderful experience at our church. And it's not the same experience that everybody gets to have at their churches, but in our church, we had we had a a pastoral staff that got together at a staff meeting months and months before this class was taught and said, This is an area in which we can address and help our people navigate. This minefield that they've been subjected to, that they're this cultural battlefield that they—it's not even that they are trying to wage a war, but they're in the middle of it and they're they're losing, <laughs> and they're not even know a lot. Uh, most of them, some of our uh, in our church, they didn't even realize, you know, the stakes that have been raised. They knew that their their jobs had become uncomfortable. They knew that there were there were certain ideologies that were creeping in through human resources, but they really didn't know exactly where it came from. And so our leadership decided to address this in a class and we made it, you know, free market. Whoever wanted to come to class, you know, at 10 o'clock before our worship service at 11, you come and we'll talk about these issues. And so we taught, we put it in the perspective of the Bible. And you've heard a lot of these lessons on this podcast. We put it and said, all right, what are, what does the Bible have to say about these societal issues? What is the prescription? You know, we, 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 if it's a problem, the Bible will have addressed it. And so that's what we did, and that's what the ministry does. It helps equip people that they can reach unity in the faith and that they could no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves of what? Of every the wind of teaching and cunning craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. This is what's coming to not just America, it's here in America, but this is, what, this is what's coming to the church, is deceitful scheming. This cunning craftiness, these, these, these damnable doctrines is what the Bible would say in the King James. So, what does it say concerning these scriptures? It says that, that, okay, so we want you to be no longer infants tossed back and forth by waves and are blown here and there and by every wind of teaching and by cunning craftiness of the people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love. We will grow to become. In every respect, the mature body of Him who is the head—that is Christ—and so we kept reading in Ephesians. A lot of people, you know, will just select that fivefold ministry or fourfold ministry passage out and stop there, but. Paul has an idea that it goes beyond that, that the fivefold ministry is there to mature people, that they could come into the unity of faith, they have the full knowledge of Christ, all these things that the ministry is there to do to equip people. Why? Because there's going to be people come in to the church with deceitful cunning. They're they're going to have schemes, and they're they're going to try to lead the, 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 the faithful away. And so we got to challenge that. And how do we challenge that? Last episode, we talked about how we live not by lies. And so in the last session that I did at our local church, I told them, I was like, look, we're, we're talking about communism. We're talking about a group of people in Soviet Russia, the USSR, that had been conditioned to live in fear through great coercion by the government. We're talking about under threat of, prison camp, or death, that they had to, to maintain these lies. And Shoshenitsyn said, we're not ready to take it to the streets. It's too dangerous right now. But what if we just did not agree with the lie? What if, what, if, what if we just, maybe we can't say what we believe, but what if we just said, what if we didn't say what we did not believe? What if, what if we refused to say what we did not believe? And so I took our class through that, and then at the closing argument I made was, when it's time to speak the truth, it matters how we speak it. So if we're looking to become mature, if we're trying as, a, as the ministry, trying to equip our people and equip our church people to not be carried away and blown here and there by every wind of doctrine that comes forth, all these deceitful schemes that are coming into the church under the guise of social justice, what, what, are we, what are we trying to do here? Well, we want to empower them. We want to teach them the truth. The goal would be then to speak the truth in love. Can I tell you that there are certain things that will always be offensive to the sinner? The cross is a, an offensive symbol, and it stands in the way of every man's path to hell. And it confronts them in their sin. And if they repent, it gives them a way out. When confronted with your sin, you can get mad and be offended, which is an offensive thing to tell someone. Or it's an offensive thing for someone to learn that what they're doing is wrong. They can either stop being wrong and repent and they have the way out. They're by the cross, at the cross. or They can be offended that someone would have the audacity to say there's a better way. And that's the choice that Christians have. That if we present the gospel, it by its very nature draws a line in the sand and says this is right and this is wrong. The good news is you can be right. The bad news is you are currently wrong and that will offend. So what do we do? when confronting someone with the gospel. Now you say, I don't even like that word confrontation. I'm sorry that you don't like my explanation of it. It is confrontational whether you want it to be or not. You can give Jesus all the good PR you want. But my point remains that we are going to be standing as a contradiction to this world if we're being the true church, the church of the living God, we will live in contradiction to the world. And by our very peculiar lifestyle, we will convict and offend those that, doesn't, that don't believe like we believe. But what Paul is saying here is that does not give us an excuse to be mean or offensive. Now you say, that's a contradiction in terms. It's not. There's a difference between saying something that could offend and being offensive. We don't seek to offend. You seek to live and proclaim truth, speak the truth in love. There's a great passage in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is about to confront someone's sin. It's the rich young ruler, and this man, whether he's lying or not, he is claiming that he has kept all the commandments from a child up. And the Bible says that Jesus's retort was this one thing you lack. Now, this story is in other Gospels, but it's in Mark that draws draws this one specific point before Jesus says, one thing thou lackest mark i don't know what he noticed that the other ones didn't or what he wanted to remind us that the others just thought that it was it, it went without saying, but the scripture said that Jesus beholding him loved him and said this one thing thou lacks it's amazing to me that Mark picks up on Jesus loving him right before he stands to quote-unquote, condemn the man for his lack. And the, understand, Jesus is not condemning. This, the gospel message is not condemning. It's actually liberating. It does tell people that they're sinners. But again, it also is the answer. It's not the problem. It pronounces the problem, but it's the solution for the problem. But it makes a whole lot of difference if you love that person before you present the gospel to them. I used to say it like this when I was a young preacher that love was the anesthetic that dulled the pain of the truth. I think I borrowed it from a quote. There's a football quote that said that stupidity is the anesthetic that dulls the pain of. And I can't even remember what the rest of the quote was. I've been saying it the other way for so long. No, it was I think it was arrogance or ego is the anesthetic that dulled the pain of stupidity or something like that. It was a funny football quote. But for years after reading this verse, I've always said this, that love is the anesthetic that dulls the pain of the truth. If you're about to, if you're about to hit somebody with the truth, and people need truth, you should know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth is something that needs to be shared with people. But if you don't dull the pain, listen, you, you've, got a, you've got a scalpel. The Word of God is quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. You, 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 you've got a very sharp weapon. A very sharp sword in your hands. But it can also give life. A surgeon's scalpel is very sharp. But it can operate on someone and pull cancer out of somebody. But wouldn't it be a whole lot better if there was some anesthesia that was flowing? That deadened that wound? That deadened that pain that was going to be felt? That's what love is. Instead, speaking the truth of love, or in love is what Paul says, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him that is the head, that is Christ for him, the whole body joined together, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. When it's time to speak, when it's time to just stop living by lies and start speaking the truth, we speak the truth in love. Let's keep reading Ephesians 4 and let's see where Paul takes this. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Does this sound like the world that we live in right now? That we, got, we, we can't live like they do in the futility of their thinking. They've lost all sensitivity, is what Paul says, having lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. Man, this sounds like he's describing American culture. That, however, is not the way of life you have learned when you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the word of truth that is in Jesus. He says their thinking is not our thinking. Their, 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 Their understanding is darkened. But we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, is what the scripture says. Their senses have been dulled due to sensuality. I'm telling you, we live in such a sensual, pleasure-driven, all what you see, look at what you, I mean, use your eyes to, 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 to gain pleasure. Use your hands, your taste, your smell, all, all, the, all the senses. They want you engaged on some level in this culture. And Paul says, through that, they have lost sensitivity because they've given themselves over to sensuality. They've indulged in every kind of impurity. We don't don't live like that, or we should not live like that. Keep reading what Paul writes in his letter to the church of Ephesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body. My whole crux of the message that Sunday and what I said in the last podcast and what I'm trying to say is Stop living untruthfully. Speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. We, we're, we're, we're not beholden to these world ide- worldly ideologies. We're, 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 we're here to, we're, we're not fighting a flesh and blood battle. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God, the pulling down of strongholds. Paul says, We destroy arguments we got, We got to stop this speaking untruthfully. we got to put off falsehood. we got to speak the truth. But Paul says we got to speak the truth in love. And so that was the spiritual thrust of Sunday's talk at Sunday school when I was concluding this. And I concluded it with a story about the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is a very unique story. It's very uh concise I love the the early books of the bible genesis is such a it's it's such a compelling work. I've read it over and over the last two and three years um I've listened to lectures on it I've read books on it I've got every commentary that I see at a used book story on the book of genesis um I'm being drawn in to these stories and the Tower of Babel is a it's a, it's a powerful Small story it's just it it only spans just a few verses in Genesis eleven, but it's such a unique story in the way it is told. I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to explain a little bit how I think it relates to this day and hour. I'll give Melvin Tinker all the credit on this one. One of his books that I read was This Hideous Strength, which was a title borrowed from a C.S. Lewis space novel. Also, that was borrowed, I think, from a painting of the Tower of Babel. So it comes full circle uh, here in the Kenny Chester podcast of, of all the renditions of that hideous strength, but it's talking about the Tower of Babel. So let's read the story. Now, the whole world had one language and common speech. As the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used the bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. And so we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, "As if it, it is as if or if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world from there, the Lord scattered them all over the face, or them over the face of the whole earth. Now, when you seek to understand scripture and you have a clear passage where it has a beginning of the story and an end of the story, you want to start looking for clues to what is trying to be communicated. Some of the clues can be found in repetition and patterns. One repetition that emerges in this story is the use of the word whole. The repetition is meant to imply it was a collective rebellion of man. This is how I see it that you hear it's the whole world, it's the face of the whole earth, and it's the language of the whole world, and it's the face of the whole earth later on. And so understand this is one of those situations where it doesn't have like this guy did this and this guy did this. This was collective rebellion. And why is it seen as rebellion? Well, God's cultural mandates that had been given to man up to this point was to feel the earth and to subdue it. He gave it to Adam and he gave it to Noah. So here in Genesis, early, early in Genesis, they're seeking to build and not be scattered. The, uh, uh, in fact, that's what they say. Come, let us make bricks. We, we, we don't want to be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So this is rebellion. They're supposed to go out into all the earth and fill it. And they say, we don't want to do that. And so it's collective rebellion. Another thing that you want to notice here is that they were seeking to make a name for themselves. Ironically, they were made infamous by their failure and left without a name. There was no great city. We say, well, it's Babel. No, Babel was the name of the failure. How did they mess up? They messed up because they could not communicate with one another. That was their failure. And it, it's labeled as Babel. And so they didn't make a name for themselves. We don't know any of their names. We only know it as the Tower of Babel. And again, that describes their failure, not their success. The, one, the thing that I want to get to and what Mr. Tinker does so well is to point out that he believes that what they're doing here, is challenging creative order in as much as they want to have a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, this is a point that he makes very succinctly in his book, and I re- would recommend anyone read that book. It's more about culture than any of the other books that I've, I've written as far as a detailed account of the slide and immorality that we've, we've gone into but he says that God early in the book of Genesis was clearly establishing order And but defined lines like boundaries. And one of the things that they were doing here was they were blurring the lines of heaven and earth. Now notice what the creation account deals with. In the first three days of creation, the MO of God seems to be To have clearly defined and designed places for everything to be. Day one, he divides night and day. Clearly or divided. This isn't one thing and this is the other. Day two, he divided the sky from the sea. Day three, divided dry ground from the sea. Now what happens on day four, five, and six? The day four, five, and six, he creates the things that inhabit the defined locations. Look at it this way. Day one, he says, all right, light and darkness. What does he do on day four? Creation of the sun, moon, and stars. There where the night and the day are d- d- divided. You see that you see the parallel? Day two, divisions of the sky from the sea. What did he do on day five? Creation of the birds and the fish. Birds in the sky, fish in the sea. Michael Bublé would say, "You know how I feel." (laughs) Day three, divisions of dry ground from the sea. So, what does day six do? Creation of land animals and humanity. It seems like he's obsessed with dividing night and day, sky from sea, ground from sea, and then placing those things that will inhabit those clearly divided. Realms. I read another book that had nothing to do with this culture in crisis, but I found something that was very interesting that applies to what I'm talking about. The book is by Trimper Longman III, and it's called How to Read Genesis. This is what he says, and I quote, what is clear is that there is an intentional relationship between the first three days of creation and the last three days. The first three days describe the creation of realms and habitations. The second three narrate the creation of the inhabitants of these realms. So the realms created on day one, light and darkness are filled on day four, sun, moon, and stars. Those on day two, sky and water, are filled with those on day five, birds and fish. And those on day three, land, is filled on day six, land, animals, and human. This sequence demonstrates the care in which God prepares the cosmos for its inhabitants. It particularly highlights there the special relationship that God has with his human creatures. Now, the book goes on, and again, it's not talking about our current cultural situation, but I thought it was really, really good when making Mr. Tinker's point that God is seemingly very much trying to divide and clearly delineate in distinct areas and realms. And so in Genesis story of the Tower of Babel, you have a a group, a collective group that rebel against the commandment of God to fill the earth, and they are they are gathering together in building a tower that goes from earth to heaven. They're blurring the lines. The point is further brought out in Leviticus when dealing with dietary laws. Unclean animals are those that blur the distinction. Seafood that has no scales or no fins. Same applies to the sexual sins of homosexuality, transvestites, and bestiality. All these things we find in Levitical uh, law is things that blur these lines. And so it would seem that one of the sins of the Tower of Babel is the blurring of lines of God's created order or creative order. Something else that I found that was remarkable about the Tower of Babel, and this was... Brought out in Mr. Tinker's book as well was that the whole passage is written in a chiastic structure. You say, What is a chiastic structure? I'm glad you asked because I had to figure this out as well. Chiastic structure is an inverted parallel, it's basically a structure of reversal. Corresponding elements begin and then reverse. It's a theme like has developed, maybe the most famous one in presidential quotes is. The famous John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You take one statement and then you reverse it and it has supposedly profound wisdom. So there's a chiastic structure in Genesis 11 verses 1 through 9, which is the story of the Tower of Babel. I want you to visualize this, and I might link a, uh, a Google image to this on the, the episode details where you can see this for yourself. The Tower of Babel in these verses, let me, let me go down and show you that it's in verse 5, is the pinnacle of the story. It's where everything that, that is, uh, has been set up to a point is about to be reversed. And I'll, I'll let you guess uh, initially as what that, that verse 5 said in that chiastic structure. But look at it this way. Now the whole world is the first verse. The last verse of that passage says, of the whole world. The next phrase had one language and the same words. The second to the last scripture, the Lord confused the language. The third, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. It was called Babel. Because there. You see, you hear the you hear the similarities. The next one says, They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks. The corresponding scripture, the Lord said, Come, let us go down and confuse. The next, then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower. The corresponding verse to see the city and the tower that the men were building. That works backwards all the way down to verse five. You know what the verse five what verse five says? But the Lord came down. If you take that structure and turn it on its side, then you will see verse five and how everything from the beginning is undone after that. How does it work? Well, the Lord came down. The Lord came down, and he had the final say in both in both corresponding verses verses the 1 and the 9 and the 2 and the 8 and the 3 and the 7 I, in both representation it's god's actions not man's which is the final and decisive word despite mankind's attempts to redefine reorder and replace god and his perfect creative order it is god who remains god his word is true His order is perfect. This isn't the first time in 2021. This is not the first time that human culture is trying to dethrone God and realign and reorder His creation. But I personally believe it's the last time men will try it. For God will come down like He did in Genesis 11. He will reestablish order. He will reverse man's attempt to set themselves up as gods and the arbiters of truth. And in that day, we will know Him as God. This has been the Culture in Crisis series. Thank you for listening all the way through. If you're listening right now, I encourage you to go back and listen from the first to this point. Thank you for listening today. God bless. You've been listening to the Kenny Chester Podcast. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review.